theology was once the master discourse of public discussion, economics is now the master discourse, and both have been used and abused for all sorts of purposes, misunderstood and consciously you know, misappropriated. <laughs> the Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm a scholar, writer, and translator who specializes in political theology, the intersection between religion and politics. It's a very great pleasure to have with me on the show, Professor Paul Oslington. Paul has been a professor of economics at the Australian Catholic University. He's also been an associate professor of economics at the University of New South Wales. He's had a long and intimate association with Alpha Crucis, and I'll invite him to say a little bit more about that institution and his role there shortly. Uh, Paul is also a visiting fellow currently at the Australian National University, and he's an honorary uh, research professor attached to the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University. Paul has not one but two PhDs, one in economics from the University of Sydney, and also one in theology from the University of Divinity. And as you might anticipate from those two PhDs, a lot of his research focuses on the intersection between economics and theology. And in that regard, he's currently working on a really interesting book project for Harvard University Press on the history of economic thinking in the Christian tradition. So. With all of that said, Paul, a very warm welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Jonathan. It's it's great to be to be here with you, and we're kind of colleagues um, at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture. But we're, we're being actual colleagues almost for for a month with me being down in Canberra, and that's a a, a great pleasure. Um, CS Charles Sturt University is probably an animal that people are more familiar with, but Alpha Crucis um, perhaps conjures up all sorts of of images. Um, I, I should, um, I, I, there's one story I shouldn't tell about how the name came to be, but we, we used to be Southern Cross um, College. Uh, it's been the College of the Pentecostal Movement for many, many years. But there was a, a vision um, to create a, a Pentecostal Christian University for Australia you know, some years back. And of course, there's already a, a Southern Cross University in Australia, so you can't have two of them. <laughs> and so we had to come up with a name. And um, Alpha Crucis is the brightest star in the Southern Cross constellation. But uh, it, it makes a bit more sense when you explain that to people. Asians can't say the word, so in some ways it's a bit of a, um, a strange name. The other thing about it, and I pointed this out um, when I joined, that if you're a bunch of crazy Pentecostals trying to start a university, you should at least pick a kind of mainstream name, something like <laughs> Trinity University or something to you know, pick out the third person of the of the Trinity. But um, we went for something out there, Alpha Crucis, that no one understands and a lot of people can't say. But it's been, it's been really fun to be involved with friends in this project of trying to create a, a new kind of university for Australia. It's a, definitely an interesting element in the higher education and religious landscape of Australia, this Pentecostal institution vying to be a Christian university in the Australian scene. Uh, Paul, we mentioned your sort of work on economics and, and theology with Alpha Crucis and other institutions. 
You've done a lot of research and, and I gather continue to do research on Adam Smith. And I'd like to begin this conversation, which who knows where exactly where it'll go. I'm excited to see where it goes. But I think Adam Smith, given your expertise and knowledge and his seminal role in the intellectual history of the West, I think it's fair to say Adam Smith is one of the giants of the Western intellectual tradition. What is he famous for? Well, how long is uh, a piece of string? He's regarded as the father of economics. He was also a moral philosopher. I've heard him described as the father of capitalism, of free trade. He, of course, is the originator of one of the most enduring, uh, popularly known and contentious economic images or concepts uh, in the form of the hidden hand, which has this function in the markets, and I'm sure we'll cover that in due course. But perhaps we should go back to basics. We can't assume everyone is a, an Adam Smith scholar listening to us. So let me ask this fundamental starting question. Who was Adam Smith? Yeah, well, that, that's a, not as simple a question as it sounds, Jonathan. Uh, who is Adam Smith for us? And Adam Smith has been, as you alluded to, accused of, of many things and lauded for many things. In fact, one of the... Um, the editors of the standard edition of Smith's works described him as the founder of Marxist sociology. Oh, really? <laughs> and he, he's also been credited, as you mentioned, with being a, you know, responsible for this, this terrible beast capitalism that um, people in humanities um, faculties tell me is responsible for most of the problems of the world. <laughs> so he's been accused of many things, um, recruited for, for many causes. So who is Adam Smith for us? Well, a whole lot of things. But if you want to go back to 18th century Scotland, uh, I, think, I think it's just so important to, to do that, um, to get a sense of, of who he was, what he was doing in that, in that context. So he had a, a really strange childhood. His father died before he was born, and there's some interesting stuff about you know, the, the, father, the, the fatherless world and you know, a sense of... You know, there's lots about God's government of the, the universe in both his major works, the, the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. Uh, he lived with his mother after the death of his father, in fact, for his entire life, um, right up to the, the final years in Edinburgh, and that, of course, has um, got uh, Freudian-inclined um, interpreters going. It sounds like he's a very interesting subject for psychologists. Absolutely. And psychotherapists. <laughs> Probably Asperger's, based on a lot of the accounts. Um, a single all his life, David Hume, his great friend, tried to team up with various um, French comtesses when they were on the continent <laughs> together with hilarious results. Um he spent time as a university professor. Um, he left that actually for a much better remunerated job, you know, taking a, um, a, a young um, Scottish um, gentleman around the, the continent, you know, educating him. Education in those days was partly university, but partly the, the grand tour. Um, so lived, lived mostly a pretty boring life you know, as a professor and in the last years of his life, actually ran the customs system for Scotland. Somewhat bizarre thing to do for someone who was supposedly the, the father of free market capitalism. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's just so good to ground discussions of Smith you know, in the, the actual Smith who lived in, 
in 18th century Scotland um, because I think it does weed out some of the more um, ridiculous attempts to appropriate Smith for, for different causes. So you, you mentioned uh, Smith's, I guess it would be fair to say, m- more famous of the two main works he did, The Wealth of Nations. That's a short title of the the book. So taking that book, but not that book exclusively, give us a sense of what his intellectual contribution is. Well, we might deal with his reception later or misreception, and you've alluded to the way he's been much used and abused, which happens to all seminal figures. If you become big enough, then you become very broad and people start interpreting you in all kinds of ways. But putting your hat on as an economist now, what what is his contribution to economics, economic theory? I mean, economics is a discipline and the way we, we think of the world today. Yeah, well, for economists, and I'm, I, I, I wear hats as an economist and a theologian, um, I guess an intellectual historian a lot these days. But for with my economist hat on, now Smith is the, the father of our discipline. Um, Smith wasn't the, the first person to write in economics. Economics or political economies was then known. It was an international enterprise. The French were probably much ahead of the English in developing economic theory. Now the Italians, the Germans were all involved in this um, project of, of thinking hard about um, what the the management of an economy might look like um, in the in early modern Europe. So Smith is not the first economist, but really a political economy in Britain now looks back to the wealth of nations, those who who built political economies of discipline in the early nineteenth century. They took the wealth of nations as their starting point. You know, it gathered together actually a lot of the um, European um, theorising about. Um, the economy. So it was, I guess, the first, it wasn't the first sortie into the world of political economy, but it was certainly the, by far, the most influential treatise. So in that sense, I think it it was the foundation of the discipline of economics. But, so Smith was, is for economists the founder of the discipline, but other scholars have tried to get a piece of him more recently, particularly around his his other major work, now published before The Wealth of Nations. The Wealth of Nations um, was published in 1776. Um, the Theory of Moral Sentiments was first published in 1759, a work of moral psychology. And there's been so much interest outside the discipline of economics in that work in recent years. So for those who haven't read The Wealth of Nations, I've, I've dabbled in it over the years, but I, I haven't got too far because it's not really my my area of uh, primary interest but give us a sense of what the books call argument or arguments is well, or are well jonathan at least you're prepared to admit that you haven't read the whole <laughs> that makes me unique 700 and something pages economists if you talk to them of course have, have all read every every page course, including yeah. the long digression on the price of silver um, that <laughs> i've never actually managed to get through myself i, I didn't want to say it but i uh, what 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 sort of uh, defeated me in my attempt to read it is like you know he's this giant and this kind of fits the personality that is described by his contemporaries you know he's not a very good conversationalist i just couldn't get through the sort of dour um business-like nature <laughs> of the work yeah, well, I mean, there's various reading guides to the Wealth of Nations around for those who do want to 
uh, dive into it. Uh, it starts with this uh, beautiful discussion of the division of labour, in which Smith feels is the, um, the most important factor you know, in the growing wealth of early modern Europe, including you know, the Scotland of his day. The Industrial Revolution was just getting going as Smith was writing. You know, it took longer to take off in, in Scotland than it did down in England. So you know, he was writing at a time where he didn't really know uh, where this thing, which he called commercial society, which we, you know, following Marx, usually call capitalism, you know, where this thing was, was, was going. So the wealth of nations is, is grappling with that. You know, the opening passages are talking about the division of labour, um, which he feels is the, the, the key um, component. You know, there's subsequent discussions of, of capital. It's not a really a very well-developed discussion of of capital in, in the wealth of nations. There's discussions of trade. Uh, there's his famous um, criticism of what he called the mercantile system, a uh, system of uh, trade protection and um, control of interest rates and, and currency movements. And he rejected the mercantile system in, in favour of the you know, obvious system of um, natural liberty, which he felt was the system which would you know, would best provide for, for Scotland and providing for Scotland that day was a big deal. Um, we, we, we're used to great wealth and we think well, we're kind of used to it but in 18th century Scotland you now people starved regularly and so having a system that generated um, a reasonable standard of living for the population was a you know, an intense moral issue. Smith cared about that. That's why he was writing on matters of political economy. Uh, you plough on through the wealth of nations and uh, if you're reading it, we'll get, I guess, to the invisible hand later, Jonathan, but you, you have to read 600 and something odd pages before you <laughs> get to the one reference in the wealth of nations. That every person has heard of. To the invisible <laughs> hand. <laughs> uh, there's a wonderful, if one of my favourite bits of the wealth of nations is in book five, which is discussing education and, and various other um, public policy issues. There's an absolutely gorgeous discussion of the economics of preaching. If you're a theologian and oh, you really? want to dip into a bit of the wealth of nations, read, read this. It's about the incentives for, for preachers, about the effect of different funding schemes and regulatory schemes for the church on, on theology, on the behaviour of ministers. A wonderful, wonderful discussion. I've, I've written a little bit on this. It's an, it comes out of an exchange between Hume and Smith. Um, can I just say one thing? I know I've, I've gone on for a bit, Jonathan. Oh, you, you, we have the time for digression, so digress away. Um, Hume, his friend, now writes in the history of England that he's a great fan of church establishment. Um, it buys, as Hume says, the indolence of the clergy. <laughs> And he thinks this is a great thing because an indolent clergy will be, be moderate in their ways. Um, wow. <laughs> so that, that's Hume's take uh, with typical Humean irony. Yeah. And then Smith takes him to task and says, well, look, actually, I, I don't think an established church will lead to moderation. Uh, have a look at the incentives. Uh, if, you are, uh, if you've got a monopoly in any industry, you'll use... All means, including violent and dishonest means, to maintain that monopoly position. So Smith believes that a 
church establishment doesn't lead to moderation. It leads to um, dissension and all, all manner of, of ills. And Smith instead advocates a competitive religious market. <laughs> so the sects, different religious sects, to be treated equally, except the Catholics, of course, um, or the, the papists, or um, as he calls it, super, he refers to the Catholic Church as that, that superstition. Okay. And that, that played well with his Scottish readers, most of his Scottish readers. But if, you, if you're a theologian and you want to read a really juicy bit of The Wealth of Nations, um, have a read of that bit in Book 5 of, the, of Church Establishment and the Economics of Preaching. It's, it's wonderful stuff, Jonathan. Sounds like it. If only I knew I could skip straight to Book 5 and uh, <laughs> find something that suits my, my interest. You mentioned there a little bit, Paul, about the economic context of uh, Smith's day. And I mean, you could say this of any discipline, but it seems to me particularly apposite in relation to economics. I mean, we're talking 18th century Scotland. I know Smith had some first-hand experience of Europe and probably had multiple languages like uh, European scholars of those days. But, you know, if he is the father of economics, as you say, then he develops this new area of systematic intellectual inquiry in a very specific economic context, which is quite different from ours. You mentioned the term uh, mercantilism, which is what you'll find in history books as a description of the sort of prevailing, I don't know if it's economic orthodoxy or actually economic uh, system of the day. But in the course of this conversation, it would be good at some point to do a bit of analysis, if time and context permits, of the contemporary economic environment in which you and I live, which is some form of capitalism by popular uh, acclaim. And of course, you mentioned there that, that Smith was sort of working before the concept of capitalism <laughs> even really enters the vocabulary of intellectual thinkers, let alone popular imagination. So this is all by way of, of, of saying, could you just flesh out a little bit the, the way the economy of Scotland or European economies or even the global economy sort of functioned in that day? What, when, when Smith was theorizing about economics, what was the economic reality <laughs> swirling around him at the time? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Jonathan. I think to properly read Smith... You need to know something of his context, uh, and particularly when you're reading The Wealth of Nations, of the, the economic context. Um, in 18th century Scotland, uh, it was predominantly agricultural. Um, there was the beginnings of manufacturing. Uh, the, I mentioned the beginning of The Wealth of Nations. Uh, the division of labour is illustrated a reference to a pin factory. So it's, it's, not, it's not large-scale industry. There's not the large concentrations of capital that we have in our economy. Uh, trade is much, international trade and capital movements are much more, are much trickier um, than they are for us. Um, a, very, a very different economic context to the one that, that we live in. And I think in reading The Wealth of Nations, it's important to be aware of that. I mean, the Scholars, in my experience, often don't like to speculate, which is a way of saying I'm, I'm about to invite you to speculate. But 
Oh, this is a podcast, John. Let's go for it. <laughs> speculate away. Well, if you can't speculate on a podcast, where can you speculate? We I mean, obviously Smith is a an 18th century uh, man, and as you say, he's at the beginnings of industrialization. Uh, what he called was it commercialization or the commercial society? Commercial society, his, his term. which becomes capitalism. So, if if Smith were alive today, or sort of woke up or was reincarnated i mean i shouldn't try and get into the metaphysics none of it works but if he were sort of transported into our time what are some of the things that you think would really surprise or shock him about where the economic reality of his time evolved into (laughs) yeah yeah that's an interesting one i think he'd first be utterly gobsmacked by our wealth it's difficult i think uh, where um, Australian academics, um, there's a where the um, wealthier end of society, as much as academics grizzle about how little we're paid, um, we're well off in what is an extraordinarily wealthy society, unprecedented wealth historically. And I think that's the first thing that would strike Smith. And I think that would please him, uh, coming from a Scotland where as I said before, a lot of people starved. Um, You have a look at infant mortality, you have a look at all sorts of life expectancy, all sorts of measures, and life was pretty grim. So I think he'd be surprised, but also gratified at the, the level of wealth that he observes in our society. He'd find, um, if he was then spent a bit of time reading the financial review (laughs) or something, I think he'd be surprised by some of our economic policy debates. Um, People who, the the Reagan supporters who've never read The Wealth of the Nations, who were pictured all wearing Adam Smith ties um, when they fronted the press, um, they would be very surprised to know that Smith was in fact an advocate of of usury laws, of um, fixing rates of interest. He was an advocate of the Navigation Acts, which restricted trade to to British shipping. Um, He'd be, I think, surprised at the size of of our state, but I think he'd be also surprised and pleased at the degree of economic liberty that we, we enjoy. Fascinating. I think that sort of naturally starts to take us into the reception that Reaganite uh, <laughs> reference that you that you made there, and I'm I'm conscious that the reception is vast because we're talking about a couple of centuries of, I'm sure, debate and and writing, and you know, to a, a non-economist, e- economics it does look a lot lot like witchcraft to me. Uh, only because <laughs> you're not the first person to observe that, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, and, and I know that there's there's a sort of rational basis, there's a mathematical element. You've got to have some brain power to do what I would call hardcore economics. Sounds like something else, but you know the the, the sort <laughs> of you know the number crunching, modeling, all that kind of stuff. But the the reason I say witchcraft is it's it's really disorientating for even an educated non-expert to try and follow contemporary economic debates 
because there's it seems to be no consensus on anything in economics, which itself raises fascinating intellectual questions about a discipline, at least the the sort of a public interface. And I realise there might be a distinction between the the, the sort of a tweed jacket, uh, you know, elbow patch economist, economic theorists at Oxford and and Harvard versus the the more politically operative economists that seem to attach or try and pull different parties in different directions. But whether it's tax or inflation, which is a big one right now, or the role of central banks or monetary uh, policy, labor laws, uh, productivity, it's so hard to make head or tails because you, you, you hear what feel like compelling arguments on both sides, but they're kind of mutually uh, exclusive. So I, I mean, perhaps you could voice an opinion on that, but that was supposed that was supposed to be a way of, of introducing this idea of uh, Adam Smith's reception, which I'm guessing in a way sort of reflects, at least my, from my uh, perspective, the general mess that seems to be economics. How's that for a um, <laughs> an intro to a part of the conversation? Uh, spoken like a true um, political theology person. <laughs> So many observations there, Jonathan, about about economics. The the observation that there's something seemingly magical about it. Um, the observation that economists like to keep it to themselves, they like to keep riffraff like you out of the discussion. Um, and um, and I think both of those things are true. There's this funny thing called the economy, which I think is one of the other things that would surprise Smith. This entity called the economy, which Theologians, some theologians observe we almost worship as an alternative god these days. And this this thing, you know, it, it is kind of interesting. Is it, is it a coherent concept, the economy, that we hear so much about? Because our politics now is a contest between two parties and two chief executives vying for what feels like the CEO role of a, of a, of a corporation, Corporation Australia or America or England, where it's all about the... The, the budget and the bottom line yeah yeah I mean that's a good question and it's something we could talk talk at length about now where that idea of, of the economy you know, came from and and whether it is actually coherent but I think and we're talking really about the reception of, of Smith and I, I, I think Smith would be quite surprised um, continuing our previous um, thread uh, to be to wander into an economics department and talk to a few of a few of my colleagues I think you'd be amazed at the highly mathematical nature of, of the discipline he'd be amazed that we seem to spend most of our time trying to publish papers in as academic economists in in, to, in a small set of um, top journals um, to satisfy um, promotion criteria and to keep you uh, employed <laughs> other criteria in in universities I think he'd find that that's somewhat bizarre because he was interested in in economics because he was interested in uh, to give the full title of the wealth of nations inquire into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations he was interested in in what drove prosperity why some places were were wealthy why some places were poor because he cared about uh, real people uh, who these systems um, either worked for or, or didn't. 
So I think you'd find the contemporary economics profession somewhat bizarre and he would have some sharp things to say about it. Um, he might be very surprised to learn that, that he's responsible for it. Indeed, <laughs> in, in, indeed. In, in our understanding. <laughs> indeed. I, I, think he might, I think he might attempt to, um, to get a bit of distance between himself and, and the contemporary economics profession. So I think Smith and the economy, Smith and contemporary economics, there's a lot of distance there. Yeah. So, like, just staying on this reception question, what are or have been some of the, the sort of dominant readings of or interpretations of Smith? Well, where do we where do we get started? I mentioned earlier that it ranges from the founder of Marxist sociology to the you know, the champion of um, free market li- economics, li- uh, libertarianism, li- um, in, in particularly in the US. Uh, lots of interesting work being done recently, actually, on the reception of Smith in other parts of the world, in, in China, in Russia. Um, a somewhat bizarre fact is that Smith was actually Smith's book was actually condemned by the Inquisition in Spain. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> on what grounds? Well, it it it, it was just it was placed um, placed on the index of banned books, and that, that's an interesting story because it was actually the French translation by Sophie Condorcet of the Wealth of Nations that was placed on the index. So perhaps it was because of the association you know, of the Wealth of Nations with the French Revolution. In fact, a lot of Smith's mates on the continent were involved in the, the revolution. Um, he was regarded with some suspicion in England as being a friend of the French um, after his death. So that may be it, but you know, the reception of, of Smith in the in the Anglo world you know, is is complicated as, as we've talked about. Maybe you could help me understand how he can be, how, how people on such different sides of the political spectrum are seemingly able to find <laughs> warrant for their views in, in Smith. So and maybe we could we could actually drill down into something. So clearly, he's he's one of the sort of great inspiring heroes or figures of a certain kind of political theory and policy perspective on the right in the sort of libertarian and to some extent conservative sort of conservatarian, as Charles C. Cook <laughs> has described it in a book. There's this complex relationship, obviously, in the in the U.S. and Anyone that's kind of familiar with this tradition will know that there are these figures like Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek and uh, von Mises and and others, the whole Austrian school, the Chicago school. Uh, this is a, a big deal, and, and of course, it, it's it's very present in the United Kingdom during the Thatcher years as well. But what is it about Smith that presumably there's some idea or ideas or perspective or methodology or approach I'm guessing in the wealth of nations that this sort of let's just call it a libertarian strand of economic uh, thinking as a catch-all has has identified in his work rightly or or wrongly well yeah I I think you can certainly find that strand in in Smith and he was an advocate uh, in spite of my comments earlier about regulated interest rates and the Navigation Acts and those sorts of things, 
Now, he was an advocate of economic liberty. And so I think that that reading of Smith, you know, has some has has a has some basis. But there's also so much else in Smith. I think the greatest historian of economics that we've had, a man called Jacob Viner, um, wrote a, you know, a really famous article about Smith, which ended you know, saying that you know, the, the the Wealth of Nations is a, a sort of vast archipelago of ideas, and you can find support for almost anything somewhere in the pages of, of the Wealth of Nations. Um, Viner was kind of interesting to me um, as an interpreter of the Wealth of Nations because he was, he was a, a secular Jew who came to the conclusion that the key to understanding the development of economics as a discipline in the 18th and early 19th centuries uh, was theology. Um, and, and writes about how you can't possibly read the, the Wealth of Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments uh, without an understanding of that theological background, of that 18th century theological background of Smith's work. So uh, among interpretations of Smith, you know, I've particularly been involved with, with filling out some of the theological context of his work and so that that aspect of that of the vast archipelago uh, can be better appreciated, or rather, the archipelago read better against the the theological background of Smith's work. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, Paul. What what are some of the theological ideas, or the the general let's, let's call it a term socio theological environment <laughs> that animated and shaped Smith's thought and this very intriguing notion that theology plays an integral role to the, the very development of the notion of economics. I should just point out as well, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, oh gee, I'm going to have a, a mental blank now. The Italian uh, philosopher has written on this, <clears throat> excuse me, but the, you know, the term oikonomia, of course, occurs in, in the Bible. And, yes. And has on some readings a, a sort of political um connotations i'm going to kick myself when i edit a, a this gambin. afterwards a gambin that's yeah. Giorgio gambin thank you yeah uh and and of course this is where the our term economics comes from and it's, it's got a very prehistory going right back to ancient greek thought aristotle famously in his book politics talks about oikonomia the you know government of a, a household the household being a sort of integral part of the economy to use that vexed term anachronistically in in our sense and the, and the Garmin has this whole, whole theory about how um, when, when the term's being uh, used in the New Testament it kind of implies a kind of um, divine governance <laughs> not just over economics in our sense but moreover uh, almost like a, a political concept. I can't even remember how I got onto that, but they yeah. So tease out this theology and uh, Gammon's no, certainly someone who recognises that theological dimension of Smith's work. You know, I, I think his his stuff on Smith is batshit crazy. Actually, <laughs> but <laughs> okay. there's a real endorsement for uh, a Gammon to, to use a, a technical um, term of economic um, yeah criticism. I, I can't make that pronouncement myself, but he's one of these darlings of continental philosophy contemporary continental philosophy and and i i mean reading adam smith is is 
a, a sort of stroll through a park compared to trying to trying to wade through a Gumbin or a Zizek or any of these people. And I I just think ninety percent of what they what they say makes no sense. But if if you for the intrepid uh, traveller who wants to wade through the crap that they write, you, you can find some nuggets of uh, insight. He he is right that there is a theological dimension to Smith. Um, but I think if you actually, I think again, now go back into the 18th century context, you know, the two big elements in Smith's theological background are firstly um, the British tradition of scientific natural theology. So historians of science have written a lot about this, you know, people like um, Peter Harrison, uh, who's now at UQ, and John Henley Brook, um, who was... Professor of, of Science and Religion at Oxford. Now, Peter actually spent some time there as, as John's successor. But th- they and others have written a great deal about how this um, this tradition of, of scientific natural theology was the framework for intellectual discourse in Britain for, for a long time. So I, I don't think it's been recognised previously by historians of economics just how important this background was uh, the, for, for the formation of economics you know, as it was for the formation of, of other sciences in, in, in Britain. So th- that's, that's just so important in, in reading Smith. Um, Smith was a, a great fan of, of Newton. Uh, Newton was his model for how to do science well. Um, and uh, New- Newton was, part, was a central figure in that British tradition of scientific natural theology. You can see the language of natural theology you know, right through Smith's works, the theory of moral sentiments especially, but also in the, the wealth of nations. So that's that's such an important um, thing to recognise if you're trying to, to read Smith, you know, this, this intellectual framework that he's operating in, you know, that he has in common with most of the other people in Britain that he was engaging with. And the other one for, for Smith, of course, is for Scott. And the Scots are always very keen to uh, emphasise that Smith was a Scot. He wasn't, he wasn't English. And Scotland in the 18th century was a, a Calvinist country. The Kirk really ruled Scotland. Uh, someone has observed that the Scottish Kirk um, ran Scotland like the Taliban runs Afghanistan. <laughs> That's quite yeah, an evocative comparison. Bit, probably going a bit far. But yeah, how can you possibly read authors like Smith and, and Hume and the other uh, Scottish Enlightenment figures without a recognition of this controlling um, power of the Presbyterian Kirk in Scotland you know, and the limits that put on um, discussion of theological issues. Now, there was someone um, uh, not long before Smith wrote, uh, actually executed for heresy, an unfortunate um, sc- Scottish theological student called Thomas Aikenhead. And so, now how can you write about um, intellectual discourse in Scotland without recognising the, the huge influence that um, uh, Calvinism? Pl- uh, Played even the moderate Calvinism of Smith's Scottish Enlightenment friends. For instance, you know, I've argued that Smith's idea that, and I think it's perhaps his most important idea, Jonathan, 
that there's something about markets where people are operating in their own self-interest and self-interest for Smith is a morally neutral nation. Now, in a particular institutional framework, the sort of institutional framework which he saw elements of in emerging commercial society, the people operating in their self-interest generate some sort of greater good. And that, I've argued, is just a, a, a secularised or a transfer to the economic domain of Scottish notions of providence. The Scots loved the idea, um, the, the Joseph story about how how Joseph's brothers meant it for ill, but God worked it for good. It's just such a favourite trope of Scottish uh, moderate Calvinist thought. And you know, Smith takes this, this idea of something that is morally neutral or, or even bad being worked providentially into something good. And, and I think you know, a lot of Smith's ideas about the power of markets and his arguments for economic liberty rest, uh, have, have this pro underlying providential pattern to them. And so I think both, both those elements, um, the British theological, the British tradition of scientific natural theology and you know, moderate Calvinist theology are just so important you know, for understanding Smith and have been you know, greatly neglected by scholars, now, particularly historians of economic thought who often are pretty uncomfortable um, with, with theology, especially these days. Yeah, yeah, it's part of a, a general post-Christian pattern, really, which is to underemphasize, if not outright ignore, <laughs> the religious dimension that is really present in almost all of the seminal Enlightenment <laughs> figures in one way, shape, or, or form, as though somehow you can just strip it out and tell a a complete and credible story of what motivated the and shaped the thinking of these figures. It's it's funny the reaction I get sometimes at conferences and uh, and seminars uh, pushing it's it's often called the, the new view of Adam Smith. There's a number of us who are you know, trying to recover have tried in recent years to recover this theological dimension of of Smith's work. You know, I'm I guess I'm out as a Christian <laughs> academic <laughs> out of the closet <laughs> working for Alpha Crucis um, there's something I enjoyed about being somewhat undercover in a, in a public university um, before throwing in my lot with the, the Pentecostals but as someone who's kind of out as a Christian academic uh, you can I can I've been accused of well aren't you just pushing a theological interpretation of Smith because you want to capture Smith for your own um religious purposes or something like that yeah because no one else has attempted to capture smith for any other non-religious purpose oh ex exactly <laughs> um all my all my fellow historians of economic thought are purely objective, objective and, yeah. and just sticking to the to the text yes was, was me. <laughs> with no agenda at all <laughs> <laughs> exactly jonathan um but now firstly i don't get how um how a theological interpretation of smith somehow helps a religious cause. I can't imagine that um, when people pick up you know, something I've written uh, trying to unpack the theological background of Adam Smith um, that they'll suddenly be convicted of their sins and turn from their <laughs> evil ways and 
Um, Come Pentecostals. Exactly. <laughs> I, I just I just don't really see that, Jonathan. Um, I think it's true that I've got a greater sensitivity to these aspects of Smith because of my Christian faith, which which led to me doing some training in theology as well as my training in economics. But I just find it bizarre uh, this accusation that somehow you're you're capturing Smith for your tribe for some sort of apologetic purpose. Well, it's also it seems to completely misunderstand the more general historical context in which out of which Smith came. So let me illustrate this by saying, look, if if you're if you were beating the drum that uh, Smith was a secret Muslim and he was really shaped by the Quran, then prima facie, that sounds odd given there's no Islam in the Scotland of Smith's day. And so you'd, you'd, you'd be quite sceptical and want to see some pretty serious evidence. But the idea that he's shaped by a Christian faith in the heart of a very Christian society, and you outlined the sort of the way that sort of Presbyterian Calvinism just looms so large in Scottish culture and governance. There's the deep faith of the mother with whom he spent his entire yeah. <laughs> uh, life. I, I, I saw in you note in one of your articles that, you know, he took the Westminster Oath of Confession, which he had to do to become a, an academic in uh, Scotland. So it seems like an obvious line of inquiry. It's yeah. not... It's not strange or incongruous exactly i think it should be the default argument Assumption. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the the burden of proof is on those who deny a, a theological reading of, of smith and just to be clear about this i'm claiming that the that the theological background is extremely important for smith now i'm completely agnostic about smith's own particular religious commitments. Yeah. Now, others have tried to argue that Smith you know, had an, an orthodox Christian faith. My friend um, Brendan Long is bringing a book out with Routledge at the moment you know, based on his um, Cambridge doctoral thesis some years back you know, that makes just that argument. I'm agnostic about that. You know, I think that's a, a matter for God. Smith was extremely private and especially private about his, his own personal religious convictions had a lot of his papers burnt just before he died very cagey in correspondence Do you have any, is there a view amongst smith scholars as to why he wanted to sort of scorch the earth of his private life so that we'd never have a record or do you well, care I to think, speculate <laughs> I mean, there, there are various conspiracy theories i mean one of them is that and the argument runs like this, Jonathan. I don't know whether you've heard this sort of argument in, in your field, that sensible, intelligent people like us um, you know, are, are obviously atheists. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We just can't be public about it. Um, Smith was an intelligent person, so the syllogism, you know, therefore Smith must be an atheist. And... Um, that's rather a rather strange sort sort of argument, and then it's it's fleshed out with well, he must have been an atheist, and he must have been had views like his friend Hume. Hume's religious, the religious dimensions of Hume, are, are really complicated. Um, 
so some people say, well, look, obviously Smith and Hume were close friends. That, that was their, their uh, Hume was, they were, so, they were very, very close. And the argument then is, well, Smith must be an atheist because Hume was obviously an atheist. Um, but look, John... And an atheist and a Christian can't be good friends, of course. E- exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm friends and respect enormously, you know, many who are have no religious commitments whatsoever or have religious commitments very different to mine. So that's a, a ridiculous argument. And then the other one is that, well, he was um, going to church with, with his mother just because, although he didn't believe it, um, just to, to, to avoid embarrassment with her. Again, you know, it's not based on any real evidence. Um, it's, it's just a poor argument. But in the end, Jonathan, I'm not I'm not willing to to make any particular uh, to come to a position about Smith's own personal religious um, commitments. Now I think it's a matter for God. But what I I think you have got strong evidence for uh, is that the religious context, uh, the theological context, shaped Smith's thought, which again is not a radical idea. This it seems uh, the more incongruous view is to say that you can be formed and shaped and live within a particular context, which is highly, highly and overtly religious, mm-hmm. and for it to have zero impact on you. And you, you make what I thought was a really um, perceptive point in one of the articles I read, where you, where you say, well, you can still be an atheist and and be shaped to some extent, <laughs> by the Christianity around you, because most atheists are going to encounter Christianity in this 18th century context. And unlike today's atheists, they're often quite knowledgeable about Christianity because to be knowledgeable about Christianity is to be knowledgeable of the society in which they, they live. And I wonder if if there are some flawed assumptions these days amongst atheists because they, they fail to understand what it's like to be an atheist in a deeply Christian uh, society whereas now I guess you could argue an atheist might argue look I, I, I'm not influenced by Christianity I couldn't even tell you much about it because I've just I've never been to a church I've never read the Bible that that to me is more plausible <laughs> than the idea that these people who are who are atheists they're, they're rejecting something they actually know something often uh, quite a lot about yes I, th- I think that's true um, and in Hume was shaped by the religious environment of his day, um, whatever Hume's personal religious commitments were, and Smith, Smith too. I think earlier when you were you were talking about Smith's great idea, you were talking, if I'm not mistaken, about the famous or infamous invisible hand and and markets, and that's why you. Uh, presumably brought in the religious dimension because you have argued, I think quite cogently, although I'm not an expert, that there is this sort of idea of providence in the in the background, even though it might not be explicitly uh, mentioned in there. Uh, is, is, that a, is that the great idea of Smith that you were talking about? And could you ex- perhaps just tease out a little bit what actually is the argument like what what is this invisible hand in, in the in the text your sort of reading that involves providence and, and perhaps you could contrast that with a 
a typical sort of secular reading of the invisible hand? Well, there have been very, very many readings of the invisible hand. There's just innumerable papers on what the invisible hand was really about. Um, Let me give you my take, Jonathan. Please. So I think one way the invisible hand is used is, is, is a shorthand, by scholars, is a shorthand for Smith's idea that there's some sort of self-organising, um, heterogenetic, if you want to use a bit of an obscure word, nature to, to, to individual action in, in markets. So, you know, fair enough, but that's got nothing whatsoever to do with the invisible hand passages in in Smith's work. There's actually only three references in Smith's works you know, to the invisible hand. There's this very idiosyncratic reference to the invisible hand of Jupiter in a, a youthful essay on the history of astronomy. And one of the few things that he asked to be spared from the flames when his papers were, were burnt you know, towards the end of his life. He's very proud of it. Um, very interesting document. That's fascinating. So there's an, this obscure reference in the history of astronomy to the hand of, of Jupiter. There's a reference in the, the theory of, of moral sentiments to um, the, this, the, the invisible hand of God restraining um, the, the uh, repressity of the rich man, you know, the force, things like the limited capacity of the stomach. operates um, to limit somewhat uh, the inequalities of of consumption in society. So that's a bit of a strange reference too. And the third one in the Wealth of Nations, as I mentioned earlier, uh, comes on page uh, well well towards the end of the book. You have to read well over 600 pages before you get to it. And there's just one reference. And it's in a section now right at the back of the Wealth of Nations on international trade. And the hand there you know, is operating, I think, to restrain the exit of capital from Scotland. If you actually read it, read the, read the, the reference in the, the, the the context of the larger context of the passage, not just pick it out, <laughs> uh, proof texting. I think we call it in 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 church circles. Uh, if you actually read it in context, it's a passage about capital movements and in international trade, and the invisible hand is operating to keep Scottish capital at home, uh, in spite of the forces of um, the pull of greater profits potentially from investing overseas. And that's a good thing for Scotland because you have capital flight from Scotland. Now the, the, um, that's a bad thing for the wealth of Scotland and it's a bad thing actually also for Scotland's capacity to defend itself, which is something Smith discusses a bit further on. I think that the invisible hand is actually special providence. So there's a distinction that you can make and this... Um, distinction is grounded. You know, I, I show in that article that you mentioned, you know, it, well grounded in some of Newton's writings about divine activity. And so there's this general providential force that's operating. You know, what I mentioned earlier, that self-interest in markets generates some sort of unintended good outcome. 
So that's general providence. But then I've argued that the hand in Smith is actually special providence. So it's akin to when Newton is speaking about God um, adjusting the motions of the, the planets to keep the system in harmony. So I see the invisible hand, now, and I think this is, I don't really understand the reference in the, in the history of astronomy, but certainly the Wealth of Nations reference, and I think also the Theory of Moral Sentiments reference, it's some sort of special providential action I don't think I don't want to use the word intervention because Smith and Newton had a, a sense of different sorts of divine activity, not of God breaking in from the outside you know, to, to do something, but different sorts of divine activity. And the, the special providential activity maintains the, the harmony of the system, um, keeps the system going. And I, I think it's... Smith wistfully reflecting on where capitalism might go. He doesn't know. I mean, he doesn't know the, you know the history that we've seen over the last 200 or so years. He didn't know whether capitalism would, would eat itself. Um, he didn't know whether you know, the whole thing would collapse spectacularly in some way. And so it's kind of this wistful speculation about whether you know, the hand of God might operate to restrain the exit of capital from Scotland in, in spite of the underlying um, almost general providential forces you know, that were operating to, to take it overseas. That is so striking for the fact that but both the actual textual context, which most of us don't know, let's face it, we just hear about this invisible hand as this kind of grand theory of markets, uh, to do with self-interest and everyone pursuing the self-interest and creating, mystically creating a sort of, creating more wealth than if they were operating in a, a different way. And the religious dimension, the, the sort of popular view seems so divorced from both the text and your, your sort of more theological reading that it, it makes me wonder who actually is responsible for what is popularly known as Adam Smith's theory of markets because that doesn't sound like and particularly given the the the, the sparse ref, sparse 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 references you know just three including in one very sort of uh, early text i mean that it i don't i don't see any other conclusion other than the like i say the invisible hand as it's used today really doesn't have a lot to do with smith other than that he coined the term yeah, my I'm I'm talking about I have been talking for the last few minutes about how you actually read those texts in Smith's works, and and I th you how you read them in their literary context, and you read them in their you know, Scottish eighteenth century context, and I think as I've described, I, th I think they mean something quite different you know, to the way. The invisible hand is bandied about in in popular discourse. This is this is back to front, but I, I'm just conscious. We, we keep talking about markets, and it's one of these common economic terms like the economy that we hear about all the time. But when you stop to actually ponder what they mean, you suddenly realise you have no idea. And this is this is a funny philosophical element to language. It kind of takes my mind to Wittgenstein actually this this idea that meaning is in the 
in the usage and you it's always always struck me the way you can sort of learn to use terms without really understanding what they mean or being without being aware of the problematic nature of the referent underlying yeah. them so this is a way of saying what on earth are markets actually <laughs> yeah well let, let's stick to what on earth is the invisible hand that one's hard enough for the for the moment well Jonathan. well, well, well I'm, I'm guessing that's impossible other, other than your uh but, I mean, interesting what, explanation who owns the invisible we talked about who owns smith but who owns the invisible hand um my uh, friend and uh, friend and encourager to so many you know jeffrey brennan uh, a new economist uh, philosopher and, and many other things. Now his funerals yesterday. Uh, he he thought my interest in the in the what the text actually meant uh, somewhat somewhat strange, because he just liked using the invisible hand uh, as shorthand for that you know, self-organising um, property of markets. That markets generate some sort of good outcome irrespective of the intentions of the individual actors. And he said he just didn't really care what the what the meaning was in context. The, you know, the meaning for him in the world of political science and economics was this. So you know, who actually owns the, the language? Is it the, you know, the, the contemporary users of the invisible hand language or is it you know, intellectual historians who want to restrict the invisible hand terminology? And I guess I'm in that camp. You know, to what Smith is actually trying to do you know, yeah. in the original text in its original context. You've got a much more historical approach in terms of understanding, trying to really uh, get down to the heart of what Smith meant in his context and text, whereas others have sort of... And these are two... I'm not saying the other approach is invalid because I do this myself and I'm sure you do uh, too poor you know we take ideas from great thinkers and we develop them in our own own way because we're not sort of wedded to <laughs> the original meaning uh, per se but you do have a kind of not only historian's eye but I, I would almost say the eye of a biblical scholar and you you, you, <laughs> you are more than a dab, dabbler in theology but this kind of forensic textual uh, approach is, is a characteristically protestant uh, approach to text in my experience I, I suffer from this too to the annoyance of anyone that reads secular texts, yes, <laughs> yes, I, I think we, we we're, we're exegetes. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. But I think also there's something really, and we're, we're I don't know how we got onto biblical studies here, Jonathan, but it's a really interesting discussion. I, I hope I hope people out there in in, in um, listening to your your wonderful podcast. Um, find this interesting but I certainly find it absolutely fascinating this discussion but biblical scholars you know, there's a lot of biblical scholarship which is just really arid that sticks to the the text uh, rigidly that writes PhDs on the tense of the um, you know the Hebrew verb in Chronicles 5 2 or something yeah. you know and spends years of your life doing it and who cares um, you know what how does that help the contemporary reader of the text? And there's a certain sterility, um, academic in the wrong sense, about um, biblical studies these days. And apologies to all my friends in biblical studies out there who I'm <laughs> offending. 
But there is a sense in which that neglects you know, the contemporary reader and the contemporary meaning of the text, which is, I think, part of, part of the meaning of the text. And I think it, there's an analogous issue to that issue that you face in interpreting the scriptures, to interpreting Smith. I think the, the scriptures for me are authoritative in a way that you know, the texts of the, the Wealth of Nations is, is not. But there is a sense in which my friend Geoffrey Brennan is right, that you can take... A, you can... My, my approach of digging into the original context and the literary context of invisible hand language can lead to a kind of sterility that afflicts intellectual history. And the same, it's the same sort of sterility that afflicts biblical studies. And you know, maybe Jeff is right that just as a practical matter, you know, we, we may as well use the invisible hand as, as short as, as it is used by the majority of, of people in economics and political science and, and other fields. You know, it's a shorthand for Smith's central idea about the self-organising you know, properties of markets. Yeah, I don't know, Jonathan, but it's an interesting analogy that you you drew, and and that, I have to say that idea of self-organising markets is extremely interesting and not easy to dismiss because there is, given, I guess, a market is is the some activity of some often large number of individual agents who are making economic decisions. <laughs> creating this thing we call a market and I know there's a lot of contest and debate but they do seem to work in a very basic sense in that a kind of organized economic activity does occur even if there are problems here and there and markets do seem to generate wealth it's, again it's not straightforward it's not simply there are clearly winners and losers and wealth is unequal and all that but there, there, there is there is a kind of mis mystical functioning that has to be explained somehow that almost takes us into the transcendent realm to come all the way back to the, the providential aspect that perhaps Smith intuited or saw or understood uh, you, you surprised me Jonathan you're coming close to the gospel of, of free market economics there <laughs> now, perhaps we ha should have an altar call here in <laughs> uh, in, in, in Canberra, and a political scientist will, a political theologian will abandon his, his sinful ways and come over to the um, the world of, of economics. You're, you're we're close. about to offer listeners a conversion. We're, we're, we're close, Jonathan. You're close, Jonathan. Too close. Okay. The, the so spirit, I need to is, the spirit, the spirit is moving. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I mean, just that—that that is right. I mean, contemporary economists have um, elaborate mathematical proofs of the of the way markets operate and the way markets are efficient they're under of course a whole list of of conditions but you know there have been a number of nobel prizes awarded for those mathematical proofs that in some sense are the successor of of smith's you know, insight back in the the 18th century and have been extremely important smith's idea and and some of this work by economists has been extremely important uh, in in changing the political landscape now since the 70s. As Smith was so important for the Thatcher and, and Reagan um, revolutions in, in the 70s you know, and for, for lots since. I'm very intrigued by your reference there, which was 
new news to me that there are mathematical proofs for markets or some aspect thereof and i'm i'm conscious that there are critics of markets i don't know if they are economists per se or not oh many i mean you economists i think are not the, the natural reflex of many mainstream economists is free markets but then there's a lot so then i think one thing the economics gives you is an understanding of the limitations of markets too it puts us in a very good position if you're a well-trained economist uh, to appreciate that that sometimes the extension of markets to particular domains is really problematic you know i've written for instance on the problematic nature of the extension of some of that you know, economic thinking you know, to markets in social services. Um, I think, a, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an economist. I've, I've spent a, a good deal of my life you know, studying and writing economics. And I think it can give you a much more nuanced understanding of many of these issues about markets than you see in the popular debate. That's kind of where I was heading, interestingly, because what struck me was, okay, the very notion of a mathematical proof in economics is a kind of unavoidably privileged knowledge. I mean, you know, I do arithmetic on the calculator on my phone. That's how good my mathematics is. and have to look up how you find the percentage of something every time I need to because I forget how to do it. Well, of course, our view is that... um you know, sociologists, theologians, that sort of riffraff are people who are not smart enough to be economists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> conscious, conscious of that. And there, there, is a, there is a kind of technical skill involved in, in economics that is not required, certainly not in something uh, as base as political theology, which is really a kind of artistic writing it's almost like an interpretive dance, you know, <laughs> for yeah. interpretive form of contemporary uh, dance. But but the, the serious point is, I mean, this is something I've always wondered, and I have an economist here, that because economics now is so specialised and so mathematical, and yet it's one of those disciplines that is not just a discipline, as Smith himself was aware, we are all impacted by economics and, and our political discourse really is like a kind of corporate discourse with different board members vying for taking the corporation in a different direction. Economics is the language of most public policy discussion today. But, but what I'm wondering is, see, most of us have to talk about markets without any of the mathematical knowledge or proofs, you know. Uh, there's bound to be a listener that hears the notion of mathematical proof and just scoffs and says, well, you know, it's, how do I know it's not some pseudo science or like the, the very notion that you could prove something mathematically in an, in the economic uh, dimension. And I just wonder if, if one of the challenges in our sort of contemporary socio-political existence is that economics has become really specialised and so you've got these academic economic economists who have the time and luxury to study this this stuff but then most political discourse and debate is refracted through a political lens and it's in the hands of politicians and journalists and then the punters often have to make 
political decisions like voting on the basis of economic promises you know like we hear about the the third tranche of tax cuts and my mind goes back to here's a good example malcolm turnbull's uh corporate tax cut policy that he took to an election and there's a there's a debate saying we can't afford it no we can't afford it it will have this economic outcome no it won't have that economic outcome and so i just just i don't even know how to articulate the problem i'm trying to articulate maybe you you can yeah. uh, well, be a witch doctor and <laughs> interpret what i'm well I'm i watch the with. political debate and i see so many people who don't understand the the economics that they're sprouting on about um and are often using it for their own self-interest i think you now business and i think richard dennis has pointed this out a lot um you know, to the annoyance of many that often the language of economics is appropriated by someone in business who wants to get a special deal for themselves um so i mean they 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 will pursue their very specific corporate self-interest by couching it in a wider economic language to try and make the case that this will be good for the mythical economy, i.e. everyone. Exactly, Jonathan. And how should that surprise us? Yeah, so I mean... Theological language, of course. In, I mean, economics is the language of public policy discussion today. But in the past, now, theological language has been used in exactly the same way. Mm. Uh, theology was once the master discourse of public discussion economics is now the master discourse and both have been used and abused for all sorts of purposes misunderstood and consciously you know, misappropriated for by those you know, seeking special deals or something particular for themselves that's an extremely interesting connection that i'm going to ponder after we finish this conversation but as a way of bringing home the conversation i would like to move on to one other economic topic we've we've done smith and we've we've left the great father of economics behind us but i know you've you've recently done some work or you're very interested in this idea of economic suffering and theodicy again a nice topic that brings together marries in a happy union your interest in both economics and and theology uh tell me a little bit about that i think in australia i talked i mean talked earlier about our, our, our wealth, um, it's staggering in historical terms. Australians have had it good for a long time, um, as have most you know, people at the top end of the system in Western countries. But I think we're really ill-equipped to, to make sense of economic suffering. So if some serious economic suffering is coming down the road, and who knows, I mean, the world seems a very unstable place at the moment. The world economy seems a, a particularly un, unstable thing. And I'm interested in, in how we make sense of economic suffering. Um, you know, theologians have spent a lot of time thinking about the problem of theodicy, which is really how you justify God in the face of, of suffering. You know, Hume put it, famously in the dialogues on natural religion um, that you assessed that it's hard to hold together the idea of a good god an all-powerful god and the reality of evil so i mean you can try to construct an economic theodicy to try to answer that question of how you hold the three together 
uh, for economic suffering. And it's actually a bit of a messier problem of theodicy than the, some of the standard problems of how you deal with you know, natural disasters or something like that. Because human beings you know, are involved. So what's the role of God? What's the role of human beings in this whole thing? So look, that's the whole issue of, of economic theodicy. But I think if, if we don't live in a society now where the questions are about how we you know, justify God in the face of suffering, we've still got this issue of society of you know, if things do go badly economically or you know, things do go badly for indiv many individuals in our economies at the moment if they're not going badly generally in society. How do we make sense of that? Um, how do we build narratives that help us to cope with that as individuals in a society when the wheels fall off the economy? Um, and how do, we, how do we have frameworks that, that help us to move forward in helpful ways you know, when, when things do go badly? So that, that Jonathan, is what I'm, I'm interested in. And of course, as someone who's a, a fan of Smith, I do, I do have a look at try to understand what Smith's got to say about a, a, a topic while I'm, I'm grappling with it. And what does Smith have to say on this topic? Well, interesting you should ask that. <laughs> I mean, I think Smith actually, like Hume, and this is a bit of a controversial argument for Hume especially, but Smith, I'm sure of, um, Smith rejects the problem of theodicy as it was framed by you know, seven, a group of 17th century philosophers. Um, and, he, and Smith, I think, actually goes back to a much earlier uh, Augustinian um, and tradition of understanding where the question where, where God's where God was taken as given and you grappled with the problem of suffering whereas the the 17th century theodicists you know, took evil as given and the problem was was God so I think Smith jumps back to an, an earlier tradition an, an Augustinian tradition which is hardly surprising you know, given his 18th century Scottish context and his key question is you know is how we can make things better, you know, how we can um, you know, cope with suffering. There was a hell of a lot of it in 18th century Scotland and how we can um, have a framework of thought that helps us you know, move forward um, in making things better for, for people. That's really interesting. I'd actually like to introduce, well not introduce, that, that makes no sense. I was going to say introduce capitalism, but it's, it's been in the conversation since the Oh, Jonathan, earliest moment. capitalism in, in five minutes, Let, let's give it a miss. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe six minutes. <laughs> the, 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 only, the, only, the only reason I bring it up is like when you, when you raise the topic of economic suffering, I think a lot of listeners' minds will immediately go to capitalism and the current controversy if that's the right term around capitalism and its purported responsibility for inequality homelessness market failures greed you know there's the the famous 1980s movie 
Wall Street, you know. Gordon, 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 Gordon Gekko. Oh, that's a fantastic character. scene. That's one of my favorite movies, certainly of the 80s, and it just kind of... Greed is good. Yeah. It just, Greed works. It's emblematic of that of that age or a certain aspect of the the 80s. And so, you know, we are we are approaching the end of the show rapidly. But, I mean, what I'd just be interested in a, a, a comment or two or observation of, you know, I think most people would say we live in a capitalistic system and it's been around for some centuries. It was developing in the 18th, in the 18th century context of, of Smith. Um, and I realize there's no way to frame this question that makes it possible to answer in uh, five minutes. So you can do whatever you want, want with it. But what role does capitalism play in economic suffering? Is it responsible for some suffering but less than what its most vociferous critics argue? Do they misunderstand capitalism? Because I guess the, the counter-argument is, well, it may create some losers, but that wealth that would have absolutely stunned Smith had he been alive today, a lot of people would say is a consequence of capitalism. Yes, big questions, Jonathan, and the, the clock is ticking on your six minutes. <laughs> I think how we describe it makes a big difference. If we if we describe it as capitalism, now that's got a particular history and it leads in a certain direction. Um, or the neoliberal economic order is one that you hear today. It's seldom a compliment <laughs> to be called a neoliberal or yeah, yeah. you know what's coming when something is described as being a part of the neoliberal economic order. So I think economists tend to prefer language like the market economy Okay. Um, Just because it's, it's less politically loaded, it's a more neutral... Yeah, and it has an, an overtone, I think, for many economists who want to defend markets of there being something natural about a market economy. So I think the, the first point I'd make is how you describe it makes a, makes a big difference. But I think however you describe it... Um, Deirdre McCloskey, a, a friend in America, has written eloquently on the virtues of capitalism and she since her coming to Christian faith um, the books that those volumes have become a theological defense of, of capitalism now, to her skeptical um, humanities friends that's the audience for Deirdre's work there'll uh, also I'm, be some Christians that will that just fainted in hearing the, uh, the, the very notion that you could defend on theological grounds capitalism yeah yeah it, you tend to do that for a couple of minutes in a theological common room and then run for your life <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and probably a political science common room as well yeah yeah um but i think i'm with deirdre really in the end that you just look at life at material life today and it's just better and that's because we've got an, a, a system where people are free to innovate and trade. And I think that's got lots of downsides. And I think as an economist, my training, our work as economists is about, I'm speaking about economists here, not just 
academic economists who are very focused on writing papers. But I think it's incumbent on the economics profession you know, to be defending that sort of arrangement of society as something that does generate wealth, but also to be aware of its limitations and be guiding it, setting up institutional structures that minimise the, the bad side of it and care for the vulnerable in society and and stop the rip-off, stop the, you know, the, the opportunistic, you know, we call it rent-seeking in our world of economics. I think that's... I'm sermonising now, Jonathan, in my I'm, I'm, remaining couple of I'm, minutes. I'm liking it because, remember, I just... Uh, you know, this is the altar call moment for me. So I'm... I'm Pre- preacher, preacher, brother. brother. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm speaking personally here that, you know, I, I think that's my... I, I feel that's my calling as an economist and even a Christian economist, you know, to be doing that, to be defending, you know, markets where they need defending against you know, forces of self-interest and, and ignorance because markets um, you know, have improved material life for the bulk of humanity. You know, it's very easy to be sitting in your, in your, in your, as a tenured professor in your theological common room and poo-poo material wealth. But if you're um, a poor African who's just suddenly been able to sell his crop you know, on a market to a free international market, now for a reasonable price instead of to the you know, the local middleman who rips him off. That's a that's a good thing, and it means his his kids don't starve. Um, I'm all for that, and you know, the, having a a wealth that supports a medical system you know, that means his wife doesn't die in childbirth um, next time around. So I think you know, it is a moral issue defending a system that generates material wealth that you know, satisfies, that makes human life better. But then part of my calling, I think, as a Christian economist is also to um, to identify and you know, work against the abuses of the system and you know, make sure we've got structures that protect the, the, the vulnerable. I see that with my economist hat on as part of my calling, and that's you know, intimately connected to my own you know, faith commitments and you know, hopefully nourished by my you know, theological study as well. So that's that's my little sermon, Jonathan. I, here, here endeth the, the sermon. And here endeth the, the show. That's a very good note to, to finish on, Paul, and a great, great sermon. So thank you so much for coming on and having a very interesting conversation about Adam Smith theology and economics. Well, well, thanks, Jonathan. I, I enjoyed it immensely, and I hope our, our listeners do amidst all the, the various alleys and laneways we went, <laughs> we went down in the, in, in the course of talking about Smith and, and economics for the last hour or so.